Well, today we're going to explore what could be called God's favorite number, the number seven. I say this because the number seven shows up hundreds of times and has such a range of significant and deep meaning. Personally, I think it is the most important symbolic number in the Bible. Remember in episode one when I talked about numbers in general and how numbers were created by God and how God is really the master mathematician? The number seven, now apart from the Bible, is unique among the digits from one to ten. Seven is a prime number, which means that it can only be divided by itself and the number one without any remainders. According to the ancient Babylonian mathematicians, Seven is also the first non-regular number, because it is not divisible by two, three, or five. Also, the number seven is unlike other numbers that have a relationship with other numbers. For example, two, four, six, and eight, and, and really all even numbers, are what we might may call cousins, so to speak. And that's the case also with the numbers three, six, and nine. But the number seven stands alone. Keep in mind the uniqueness of the number seven as we continue. Also, before we get to the actual number, I need to explain something. I was planning to share with you how many times the number seven shows up in the Bible. But then I ran into an unexpected challenge that I currently don't have a satisfactory answer to. Let me explain. In the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, the word for the number seven occurs 430 times. In the New Testament Greek Bible, the word for seven occurs 88 times. Add them together and you get 518. However, when I started researching the Bible's number seven, I discovered quite a few Bible scholars who claim that there are over 750 occurrences of the number seven. And I even ran across a couple of references to there being over 850 occurrences. Really? I'm scratching my head on this one. So why the huge variance in what these Bible scholars are saying? What are they counting? In Hebrew, the word for seven is Shabbat, a word that has three consonants. And remember, in the ancient Old Testament Hebrew language, there was no vowels. There were no vowels. They were added later. Now, the three-consonant word Shabbat has another meaning besides seven. Shabbat also communicates a sense of completeness or fullness. I'll give you an example. In Proverbs 3, we read, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the firstfruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. The Hebrew word translated as overflowing is Shabbat. So I ask myself, are those Bible scholars counting every occurrence of Shabbat? That I don't know. Then I got thinking about a related word to Shabbat, the word Shabbat. The word Shabbat in English is Sabbath. Shabbat means to cease from, to rest. So is the word Shabbat, Sabbath, included in these larger totals of occurrences? 
Again, I, I just don't know. But if you know, or if you have some explanation for why some Bible scholars state that there are 700 plus or 800 plus occurrences in the Bible of the number seven, while at the same time the Hebrew and Greek texts only have a little more than 500, could you let me know? I'd love to learn why there is this significant difference. So that's what I don't know. Now let me tell you what I do know. In the Bible, the number seven expresses the ideas of completion, perfection, and even holiness. Let me say that again. Completion, perfection, and holiness. Keep those three words in mind as you continue to listen. As we did in our exploration of the numbers one, three, and four, we start with creation. In Genesis chapter one and chapter two, verses one to three, the number seven, as well as multiples of seven, are quite prevalent, although we don't notice all of them in our English translations. By the way, it seems to me that verses one to three of chapter two really should be a part of chapter one, because these verses are still speaking about creation week. Our first example of the number seven is in Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You might be thinking, where's the number seven in this verse? Well, we don't see it in English. But in Hebrew, verse one contains seven words. And those seven words contain 28 letters, seven times four. Let's go to verse two. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse 2 in the original Hebrew contains 14 words, 7 times 2. Or consider the fact that the word for God, Elohim, is found 35 times, 7 times 5, in this creation account. Or consider the fact that the word for land appears 21 times, 7 times 3 as well as the words to describe the sky or heavens, also 21 times. But there's more. On day five and six of creation, the Hebrew word for animal or living thing is used seven times. And guess how many times the Hebrew word for bird or flying is used? Yep, seven. And guess how many times the Hebrew word for creeping things or creep is used? Seven again. Not done yet. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, the Bible author speaks about the events of the seventh day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Again, we don't see it in our English translation, but these three verses are comprised of three distinct clauses, each one with 35 words. And at the center of each of these three clauses is the phrase, seventh day. Finally, the Hebrew words for created and good, they also occur seven times each in this account of creation. So is all of this just coincidental? You tell me. So let's take a journey through the Old Testament to uncover where the number seven shows up. 
Now, now keep in mind, there are hundreds of occurrences. I'm only going to share a dozen or so of them. Are you ready? Let's get started. In Genesis chapter 7, God instructed Noah to take into the ark seven pairs of every clean animal. As you may recall, some of these clean animals would be used as a sacrifice to God after the flood. Then following these instructions, God told Noah that the flood would come in seven days. Following the flood, God gave to Noah a sign that symbolized that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. You know the sign. It's the rainbow. And how many colors are there in a rainbow? Seven. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Also following the flood in Genesis chapter 10, there is a listing of peoples or nations who were descendants of Noah's three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. The total number in this table of nations was 70. The total complete number of peoples on the earth. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord called Abram, who would later be known as Abraham. God's call to Abram included seven promises. First, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here the number seven expresses the completeness of the Lord's promises to Abram. When we get to chapter 14 of Genesis, Abraham meets an important guy by the name of Melchizedek, who was a priest and king of Salem, a.k.a. Jerusalem. Melchizedek pronounced two blessings upon Abraham, with each blessing being exactly seven words in length. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham sent his chief servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. In the interchange with Rebekah, the word go is used seven times to indicate the significance of finding a wife for Isaac to ensure God's seven promises to Abraham. Well, Isaac and Rebekah got married and had twin sons. After their son Jacob had deceived his twin brother Esau out of his inheritance, Jacob fled for his life and went and lived with Rebekah's brother Laban. Jacob agreed to work for Laban for seven years to earn the hand of Laban's daughter Rachel in marriage. However, Laban deceived Jacob by taking Rachel's older sister Leah to Jacob's tent on his wedding night, the great switcheroo. Jacob discovered this the next morning. And then Jacob agreed to work for Laban another seven years, so that after seven more days went by, Jacob married Rachel as well. In Genesis 29, where we read about Jacob's two seven-year stints of working for Laban, the word for work or labor occurs, guess what, seven times. Now let's fast forward a few decades. After Jacob's sons sold their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt, Joseph had the opportunity to interpret a weird dream that the Pharaoh had one night. Pharaoh's dream went something like this. 
Pharaoh saw in his dream seven fat cows grazing along the Nile River. Then along came seven skinny and ugly cows, and boy were they ugly. And they ate the seven fat cows. But even after eating the seven fat cows, the skinny and ugly cows were still skinny and ugly. Well, Joseph told Pharaoh that God told him the meaning of this dream. There would be seven years of abundant harvest, followed by seven years of famine, not only in Egypt, but as it turned out in the entire Middle East. Fast forward beyond Jacob's life and his clan, eventually moving to Egypt and living there for the next 400 plus years. And we come to Moses. In the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 2, Moses is referred to as a child. Yep, seven times. Then in the second half of chapter 2, Moses is now described as a man. Again, seven times. The contrast is between an endangered Hebrew child and aggressive Egyptian-type man who killed another man. And as a result of Moses murdering another man, he fled far away for several decades. After 40 years away, God called Moses to go back to Egypt to lead the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. But when Moses returned to Egypt, he was skeptical about the Lord's plan working. So the Lord spoke seven statements to assure Moses that he was going to indeed rescue Israel. God then sent ten devastating plagues. By the way, we'll talk about the number ten in our next episode. The result of these plagues was that Pharaoh told the two million plus Israelites to get out of Egypt. Well, they left. And then Pharaoh changed his mind. He saw his entire slave labor force crossing the border. So Pharaoh sent his army after the Israelites, who at this time were camped by the Red, or also known as the Reed Sea. In this last encounter with Pharaoh and his army, the word hand occurs seven times. It symbolized God's amazing power in parting the Red Sea and destroying Pharaoh's army. The Lord told Abraham to stretch out his hand over the sea, and the waters parted. The Israelites fled through the sea, and the army followed. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. This event demonstrated the completeness of the Lord's rescue of his people. The number seven in the Old Testament is probably most prevalent in the laws and rituals that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. They govern the Israelites' entire life. For example, the Sabbath was observed every seven days. And throughout the year, there were seven feasts or festivals. Passover, followed by a seven-day feast called Unleavened Bread. Then the festival of Firstfruits. Then, seven weeks later, was the Feast of Pentecost. Next was the Feast of Trumpets, followed by the Day of Atonement. Finally, the seventh feast was the Festival of Tabernacles, which was also a seven-day feast. The last four festivals were all celebrated in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which for us would align around September. There were also many sevens that showed up in regards to the sacrifices made to the Lord. 
There are many, but I'll just give you one example. In Numbers 19, we learn about the sacrifice of a red heifer. In this chapter, there is a sevenfold use of seven different subjects. The seven are the cow and or its ashes, the burnt items, the sprinkling, the persons who washed, the contaminated items, those that were purified, and finally, the priests. I invite you to check this out in Numbers chapter 19. A couple of more examples. Every seven years, Hebrew slaves were to be set free. Every seven years, debts were to be canceled, and the land was to lie fallow. And every seven cycles of seven years, there was to be a year of jubilee. As I said earlier, there are hundreds of examples of the number seven showing up in the Old Testament. These are just a few. Well, let's move on to the New Testament, where we see a variety of ways of how the number seven signifies completion, perfection, and holiness. Let's start with the life of Jesus. In Jesus' three-year ministry, he used seven metaphors to describe himself as the path to a renewed relationship with the true God that results in eternal life. I think you'll recognize some of these, if not all. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to salvation. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And number seven, I am the vine. These seven metaphors show us that Jesus is the complete, perfect, and holy one who gives us eternal life. One day in Jesus' ministry, he was praying. And then in observing Jesus praying, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus responded to the disciples' request with a grouping of seven petitions that have become known as the Lord's Prayer. The seven petitions are, May your name be holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Give us daily bread. Forgive our sins as we have forgiven others. Lead us not into temptation. And finally, deliver us from evil. Jesus taught us how to pray to our Heavenly Father using seven petitions. The number seven shows up in Jesus' ministry in another way. In his miraculous healing of people, both physically and spiritually. But before we look at Jesus' ministry, there's one example from the Old Testament I'd just like to mention. It happened during the life of the prophet Elisha. You see, there was a commander of the nation of Aram, an enemy of Israel's, by the name of Naaman. He developed leprosy, which was a terminal disease for most people. Naaman's wife had a Jewish servant girl who had been captured in a raid of an Israelite town. The servant girl suggested that Naaman go see Elisha. She said, Elisha will heal you. Well, Naaman went to see Elisha, but was surprised as to what he said. Elisha sent a message and told Naaman to go wash himself seven times in the Jordan River. At first, Naaman was angry at Elisha's instruction, but he went and did it. He washed seven times in the Jordan, and guess what? He was healed. Now back to Jesus' ministry. During his three-year ministry, Jesus healed seven different people 
on the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, the day of rest and completion. The seven people that Jesus healed, both physically and spiritually, were, first of all, a man with a deformed or sometimes called a withered hand, the second healing of a man possessed by an unclean spirit, next was Peter's mother-in-law, who was ill with a high fever, the fourth was the healing of a woman who had been crippled for 18 years. Her body was bent over and she could not straighten up. Jesus healed her. Next was a man who had dropsy. Dropsy is an old term for the swelling of soft tissues due to, due to the accumulation of excess water. Today, it's most often referred to as edema. The sixth healing was of an invalid man who hung out by the pool of Bethesda. He had been an invalid for 38 years. Finally, there was the healing of a man uh, blind from birth. And the way Jesus healed this man was quite interesting, I think. Jesus spit on the ground and made a little bit of mud, which he put on the man's eyes. And then Jesus instructed the man to wash his face in the pool of Siloam. And when he did, he could see. Seven miracles on the holy seventh day of the week point to Jesus' complete power over all physical and spiritual illness. Probably the most familiar seven in Jesus' life was at his death. We know them as the seven words from the cross. These are words that bring to completion Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Dear woman, here is your son. And, and then he said to John, here is your mother. The next words of Jesus were, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Next, I thirst. I, it is finished. And finally, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I mentioned earlier that the Greek word for seven occurs 88 times in the New Testament Greek Bible. In the book of Revelation alone, it occurs 36 times in the NIV translation. Almost half of all the New Testament occurrences are in the last book of the Bible. But that shouldn't be a surprise to us, because Revelation is filled with symbolic language. It also isn't surprising that this symbolic book of visions has seven separate visions. They are the vision of the seven letters, the vision of the scroll, the vision of the trumpets, next is the vision of the seven visions, then the vision of the seven bowls, which contain the seven last plagues, and next is the vision of Christ and Antichrist. Number seven is the vision of Christ's final victory. Each of the seven visions describe the end times, the times we are living in right now. Each of the seven visions describe the same struggle or battle between Christ and Satan. In the army of God is Jesus, the holy angels, the saints, and faithful witnesses to the gospel. In the army of Satan is Satan, his evil angels, unbelievers, false prophets, and worldly governments. With each vision, the struggle becomes more intense until the final vision when Jesus defeats Satan and wins the eternal victory for all believers. In the end, Jesus wins, and so do we. Let me share just one brief example of how the number seven is used in this symbolic book. 
In chapter 1, Jesus appears to the Apostle John and tells him to write seven letters to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John saw seven golden lampstands, among which stood someone like a son of man. And this was Jesus, the Son of God, the living one. And in his hands he held seven stars. John was then told by Jesus that the seven stars were the seven messengers or pastors, and that the seven lampstands represented the seven churches. Most of the numbers in Revelation are symbolic of a deeper truth. One final thought on the number seven. In the Bible, the number three is the number for God. The number four is the number for God's creation, which includes everything in this world. Do the math. Three plus four equals seven. God's involvement in his creation results in his complete, perfect, and holy will being done. In our next episode, we'll explore the number 10. Until then, if you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. Now, if you're looking for additional Bible content to listen to, go to timeofgrace.org. We've got some really great content from Pastor Mike, our many Grace Talk speakers, also Amber Albee Swenson's Little Things podcast, And last but not least, C.L. Whiteside's podcast called The Non-Microwave Truth. Check them out. Great content about our great God. Thanks for listening, and God bless.